0: My name is Michael Queenan, and my leadership lesson is trust and communication.
1: So hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. Our guest today is Michael Queenan, the co-founder and chief exec of Nefos Technologies. Ailish, you interviewed him. Tell us more.
2: Michael Queenan was diagnosed with autism and ADHD well into adulthood, and is currently writing a book about his experiences of being a neurodiverse leader. We talk about his late in life diagnosis, and he gives some advice on how to balance autism with managing
1: a company. Great. So today we've both picked one of our favourite pieces from the past couple of weeks. Ayla, she wrote an interesting article about the fact that more whistleblowers are now company insiders rather than external critics. Tell us about the piece.
2: Yes. So recent report by SafeCall, which is a global whistleblowing hotline provider, has found that HR reports make up the largest percentage of these calls and unfair treatment is one of the main reasons for HR reports. 68% of these calls are about unfair treatment. But the biggest increase came from harassment calls. Harassment calls are up 5 percentage points. From 2019, 2020, and 2021. So they've risen from 4% to 9%. Dishonest behaviour makes up 17% of whistleblowing calls, and those calls also include reports about corruption and fraud. Reports related to integrity made up 54% of calls in 2021 and 2022, which is a four percentage point increase on 2020. And calls about fraud made up 20% of overall calls in 2022, which is a 1% percentage point increase from 2021. Now, there are a couple of explanations for these increases and this data. The report author, Greg Ogle, said that one of the possible reasons is that the post-pandemic landscape has accelerated a greater awareness and appreciation of whistleblowing and confidential reporting. External reporting facilities have become the norm, he says, rather than the exception. And in 2022, there was a significant switch to web-based reporting, so up 14% from 2021 to 2022, and a 7% decline in telephone reports, although these still represented about 50% of all reports received. Another reason for the increase of these reports could be attributed to greater scrutiny of colleagues. People are now returning back to the office while they're not back to the office full time. They are back perhaps in a hybrid capacity and there's more scrutiny of colleagues. People are more aware of their colleagues' behavior because they've spent so much time away from the office, as well as the decreasing economic situation, which is impacting the level of risk
1: employees will take. That's really interesting. I think that does show that actually the kind of culture of a company and actually being there and seeing people, yeah, makes people feel more of a sense of belonging. Whereas I think when you're just mm. faced with your kind of computer screen, seeing people on Zoom squares or whatever, it's definitely not quite the same as being in mm. the office and, and sharing those kind of serendipitous moments and talking to people. Mm. Um, so it's interesting to see, yeah, you know, what impact that's had on people. And and I guess also that now people are back in the office harassment is becoming more of an issue and I remember in the advertising industry there was a big campaign that ran just before people returned to the office to warn people about that and the fact that there will be lots of people that would be worried about going back into an office and having to physically see people that they may not you know want to work with etc mm. uh, and then also just at the bottom line as you said there that it's now easier to report because you can mm. just put something on the internet and it's much easier than having to actually phone up Mm. and speak to someone in person Mm. so
2: yeah there's probably a, a little bit more sense of anonymity when you do it online because you're able to hide behind a screen as well and I also wonder if the fact that the pandemic made a lot of people rethink the way that their companies were treating them I think a lot of companies their true colors were shown a lot in how they treat their employees when they're not Under the thumb in the office, and they're working from home. And some people realize that perhaps there are some issues there with company practices or employee behaviors that become more noticeable when you're not in the office and you're having to work from home and you're communicating with people in a different way and you're working with people in a different way. Things become a bit more obvious. And also, it kind of goes to show. Your true colours also come out when you're trying to support people in a crisis as well. Everyone was affected by the pandemic, everyone. If you're working in an office environment, the majority of people were forced to work from home. It's something that most people have never had to deal with before and it happened so suddenly. Normally people have made before and were making the choice to work from home, whereas now they were forced to work from home. And companies were trying to support people through that and perhaps... What a company thought was best practice might not have actually been very good for their employees. And now they're, you know, seeing what they're really like, perhaps when they're at home and they're not able to control people as much when they're in the office. So it's made people perhaps feel a little bit more encouraged to call out some of those behaviours that they've noticed.
1: I agree. And I I think it could have also created a bit more of a transactional relationship. Mm. And I remember speaking to somebody when I was working in the advertising sector, talking about the fact that everybody had fallen for the fluffy stuff, yeah. you know, the, all the fluffy stuff of the drinks, the pizza, free pizzas in the office, et cetera, mm. et cetera. The idea being that once you've stripped all that away and you're left with the actual just hard work, mm. long hours, not much pay, do you still want to be doing that? So I think, as you say, people have been sort of really thinking about what they want from their roles mm. and what behavior they're willing to accept. Yeah. Great. And one of my favourite empty pieces that we've written recently is called How to Be a Prepper. And so not so long ago, so-called preppers were the butt of many a joke, sniggered at by the less apocalyptically minded for their habit of hoarding survival equipment and emergency rations. But these days, there's a sort of nervous edge to the laughter caused by you know, the food shortages, price inflation, political instability and war in Europe increasingly make filling the cellar with tins of baked beans, camping gear and jars of peanut butter, look more sensible perhaps. Sales of private survival bunkers are reportedly booming. <laughs> so for the nation's hard-pressed small businesses, I think this is perhaps especially true. And I particularly like this piece because it offers seven sort of pieces of advice for them to cope. And I'm going to run through them very quickly for you. And the first is that avoiding negativity is one of the main ways you can help yourself and Emma Jones the founder of the SME community and lobby group Enterprise Nation said the biggest threat to small businesses is negativity she said, I speak to lots of small businesses and plenty of them are doing well and it's important to remember that but a relentless diet of bad news may lead them to question their own success so that's something just to be aware of stay positive if you can Number two, use your network to talk to peers. It's always good for information to see how others are faring and helpful to get advice from others. Three, it's more important than ever to stay close to your customers. Their habits can change quickly in uncertain times. And one advantage that SMEs have over larger rivals is their ability to spot changes and respond to them much more quickly. Number four is to resist cost cutting. It's an absolute classic, but research has shown time and time again that you can't cut your way to growth. Point five, think about your cash flow and access to working capital, and don't be afraid of taking on debt to do that. And Paul Surtees, who's the chief exec and co-founder of lending platform Capitalise, says that intrinsically, many UK small business owners have a consumer's attitude to debt. They really try hard not to borrow money and prefer to pay for things in full where they can. But he counters that by saying, use sensibly, debt can keep a business liquid, and be used to finance opportunities that would otherwise be unavailable. And he advises businesses to think much more strategically about debt from an ROI perspective, because if you can earn a margin of say 50% on every pound you borrow, then a loan at 10% is cheap. Point six is to diversify. So if you're predominantly selling to public sector, try selling to the private sector, or if you're predominantly selling to people in the Southeast, try the Southwest. And point seven is for B2B businesses Check the credit rating of your own customers to stop you being caught out. And as we see, there's lots of discussion in the banking sector, particularly with the SBB collapse, the signature bank collapse. It's just useful to make sure you know who you're dealing with to avoid being caught out.
2: It's interesting that the biggest threat to small businesses is a negative mindset. When you think about everything else that's sort of working against them, The number one piece of advice they give them is just, you know, to almost think positively before going into anything more practical. It's interesting that that's the one that they chose as, you know, before anything else, remember to think positively and not have, what do they call it, a bunker mentality and to not be so nervous and fearful before taking those risks that's the top piece of advice that they're
1: giving <laughs> I completely agree I think you'd think it'd be much more a practical mm. advice or some sort of really strategic big picture mm. thing but just to be told to think positive and that actually will help you the most is um <laughs> I agree it's quite amusing so let's all take that forward in our next couple of <laughs> weeks and uh, see if it makes a difference great and now on to our interview with Michael Queenan
2: Okay, so I wanted to start off by asking you about your autism diagnosis so when were you diagnosed with autism and what led you to seek out that diagnosis?
0: So last July and weirdly nothing I was in a very which I would say now fortunate position that um, my daughter got diagnosed so my daughter's five now she was four obviously last year we've had some different types of issues with her since she's been born. She's always struggled sleeping. She's always struggled with reactions to certain situations that kind of led us to speak to a number of different doctors. The final people we went to talk to, because somebody mentioned that it might be worth getting a to see if it's anything to do with autism or ADHD. And we went to see a diagnostician for that. And during it was like the first session it was like a three hour type session. And during that first piece of time, they go into family backgrounds and parental backgrounds and they sort of spent about five minutes with my wife Uh, and then about sort of five minutes into the conversation with me they were like have you ever been diagnosed at all and I was like no Mm -hmm. they're like yeah um, you probably should get a diagnosis because uh, it very much looks like you have the same like autism as your daughter, which later got diagnosed with autism and ADHD. So yeah, if it wasn't for my daughter, it wouldn't have even come up. Kind of weirdly, I started writing some thoughts really, which kind of turned into bits and pieces, which was just around the concept of I wasn't autistic for 41 years. <laughs> so just kind of changing that mentality of not being autistic to being autistic would took a little bit of time. So I've always thought I just thought I just thought differently to other people and my wife and I've had this running joke for a while about the fact that I just I just think differently I don't see things I've never seen things quite the same way as as other people see them and I just thought that was just part of my personality if you like and then the last 10 years since I've started my own business I've really struggled with a load of a load of different things which I mean if you explain them most people would just classify as like consistent persistent burnout But it it sort of led into autoimmune problems and all sorts of different things. I mean, I spent a decent amount of money and I went to see almost every specialist under the sun you could possibly think about because I assumed it was something physically wrong with me because I was having a physical reaction to things. So I assumed it was something physically wrong with me. At the point of being told, there's nothing physically wrong with you. You have a disability that affects you. And it's autism and a d h d and here are some ways that you're gonna to have to try to cope with that for the rest of your life. It was shocking to start off with it was like it was it was an immense shock, and obviously, since the situation you kind of listen to some podcasts and read books and things like that um it ironically becomes a special interest <laughs> for for people with autism to find out about autism but it's weird a lot of people talk about the fact that one of their worst like shutdowns comes after the diagnosis of people later in life because it completely recalculates the whole way you look back on life. So I think for a few weeks, it was kind of a denial of just, okay, cool, it's autism, great, like move on with my life. And then there was a sort of a, a sort of a shutdown of just like, no. And then you kind of come out the other side of it and go, this is an amazingly positive thing to be able to now know that what it is that's affecting me, that it is a permanent thing and it, it won't just go away. And also the fact of there are coping mechanisms and things you can do to put in place to make your life easier
2: Mm. so if we look back over the last 10 years that you've been a business owner and a ceo before you had your diagnosis what were some of the things that you would struggle with especially in a leadership position where you're seen as a figure of authority and there's a lot of pressure and responsibility put on you what were some of those things that you initially struggled with
0: the way my brain works is my brain's like a decision tree Mm. So the way I think about things is I will think through every single possible permutation to every single situation that I find myself in, which as you could probably imagine is is kind of tiring, but that's that's effectively the way my brain works. So, so when you are running a business, I am constantly looking at what the possible things that could limit our business or affect our business are that may never happen, but I will constantly think about those types of things or what the possible permutations of those types of things are and what possible solutions for those types of things might be so that's that was incredibly tiring so you just kind of keep going round and round these kind of crash cycles of your body just breaks down and, and you spend weekends in bed because you've got no more energy left but because you're masking that during the day and because of the adhd part of the diagnosis and myself like to outsiders you seem bubbly and enthusiastic and full of energy because that's The symptoms that you have with those types of things. And then you get to the end of the day and you crash. So that was kind of like the first five year cycle, if you like. And then the last five years, as we've grown them, we now have multiple tiers of management and a structure and all sorts of things. And it becomes more, I say, of a leadership role. It's difficult when you don't think the same way as other people because certain things come super easy to me and certain things I can't understand at all. So when you're trying to engage with, colleagues and people you manage trying to have that perspective of I don't understand why you're not getting this but also at the same time on a different situation what you're telling me makes no sense I don't I don't understand why the reaction for the thing that you're saying because it just doesn't make any sense to me so from a leadership perspective you can get frustrated from both sides of that situation and again it sort of depends on what kind of stage of those cycles you're in. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not tired or run down or burnt out or something, my levels of patience and masking, I suppose, if you want a better term, are increased. Mm. But as I become more tired and more burnt out, my masking ability gets drastically reduced. Mm. So it goes from someone that can be considered helpful, thoughtful, empathetic, to someone who becomes quite, I've been told, blunt, straightforward, to the point, like skip the faff, mm. like those types of things, because I just don't have the patience for it. I just want to get through it, get through it, get through it, get through it. So that that becomes difficult, and especially before you. I knew about the diagnosis and, then, and you're just trying to live it without any reasons of explaining it to. So I think when you get the diagnosis, that ability to kind of sit down with my senior management team and explain that situation and explain what's happening and explain why sometimes I behave the way I behave and explain sometimes... That my brain will just work differently was a massive, massive help as a just an ability to kind of explain that situation and the ability to try and help other people understand what I have to go through to try and do that.
2: What are some of the things that you do day to day as a CEO to help you cope with it? Or what sort of some of the things that you do to help you make a routine and, and strategies that you use to help you kind of cope day to day?
0: So I put more breaks in. So I try to put a chunk of time generally around the middle of the day in as a break. So again, it will depend on the day and it'll depend on roughly how long it's been. And it might depend on the situation. But anywhere between sort of one to two hours in the middle of the days of just trying to break my day up. And during that period of time, I literally step away from the machine. I might go for a walk. I might read a book. I might do some meditation. I might just sort of sit and listen to some music with some sort of noise cancelling like headphones type things on, anything to try and help my nervous system come back down again so it doesn't just build on top of itself all day. I manage my diary differently as greatly as possible to not go back to back to back to back to back all day, which again, I think is super easy for a senior person in a business to do because your time is wanted by so many people. So you can just end up with meetings all of the time. And I've realized that my nervous system just doesn't do well on those sorts of things. I gauge what sort of meetings I might be doing and then try and work out some diary management around that. If I know that certain things are going to stress me more, uh, like, for example, this conversation, I haven't booked a meeting straight after this. Whereas six months or a year ago, I I would have had one just because this is a more of an uncomfortable conversation for me to be having. So I know that I'm going to have some level of reaction after this mm-hmm. conversation, that'll mean just to give myself some time. And it's the same with if I've got a workshop with a customer, I'll make sure I've got nothing after that. If I've got specifically stressful calls I might have to do knowing going into it, I'll try and not make sure I don't have something after that. So just try to balance out the time that my body needs for it to calm down each time mm-hmm. after specifically stress, what I would classify as stressful situations. I've also obviously just communicated it out more. There are times now that I feel way more empowered, obviously because of the diagnosis. Sometimes I'll say at the start of the meeting, I'm really sorry. I'm autistic. I'm having a bad time at the moment because I might be tired or stressed or whatever it might be. There's a chance I may say something in this meeting, which may seem blunt or offensive to somebody in this meeting. I apologize. I don't mean it that way. And I apologize if it comes out that way. But that's the reason why, which is a awkward way to start a meeting. But I would rather start the meeting that way to preface the fact of I'm really sorry if something's blunt comes out of my mouth where I said it in five words instead of five sentences because I haven't thought about somebody else's feelings, but it wasn't meant to be rude or offensive in that way. So I think sort of prefacing sometimes when I genuinely do feel pretty run down and still have to, to work mm-hmm. um, to, to just try and say, I'm really sorry that this isn't going to be a personal thing. This, that I just might say some things that, that may offend some people and I'm sorry about that.
2: Mm-hmm. And what happens if there's a break in your routine, where something comes up in a day and you're unable to carry out those strategies and that routine? How do you manage that?
0: You have a very loving and supportive wife. (laughs) Um, Our family life has changed because of the diagnosis. I think that is, whilst I sort of said it flippantly, that has been a a massive thing where my wife will say at the end of the day, like, what sort of day have you had? Mm. like. Do you need some time do you need a break before we have dinner or any of those sorts of things and i also think because of the coping mechanisms now i can go a couple of days with it being bad and then i just know okay as a ceo there's going to be days where it's bad and there's going to be weeks where it's bad uh, and there has been now since july i mean there's a couple of weeks ago where i didn't have a break for t- almost two weeks mm. um just because th- there was stuff happening in the business that i just couldn't slot those breaks into a day it just wasn't working but then, my wife was like, "You have to take Monday off mm. because if you keep going like this, you know you will shut down, so you have to have something where there is a level of give now that there wasn 't before because i 'm in a better place, a more balanced place where we do certain things differently at the, in the evenings and at the weekends and my working life and all those sorts of things to help me balance a bit more i 'm not quite up and down as much as I was before, so that 's been massively helpful, which gives me a slightly more flexibility of." There might be some days where I'm working eight to eight. There might be some weeks where I'm, I'm working pretty much the whole time for sort of 12 hour days. But then the week after, I'll make sure I completely break my diary up so that I can compensate for the week before. And again, just with that knowledge of, I mean, I, I was the person that just thought, well, I just work harder and harder and harder before the diagnosis. So I was the person doing sort of 12 hour days, five, sometimes six days a week, mm. because when you start your own business, that's what you think you have to do. And you sort of do. But it's with the appreciation that if you keep doing that, you will break every four to six weeks, which is what's happening to me. And this is where the diagnosis part to me is so important. And we talk to, to people in, especially people in, in working life and, and as you get more senior up through, the, through the, the tiers, if you like, manager, director, owners, CEOs type of thing, you see that nobody else is affected the way you are and you don't know why that is. So you assume there's something wrong with you So you assume that, well, if everybody else can do this, like my business partner was doing exactly the same and he was getting tired, but he wasn't struggling as much as I was struggling. So therefore, to me, you start thinking, well, it must be something I'm doing. There's something wrong. I have to change my diet. I have to change my exercise plan. I have to do this. I have to do that. Because you're thinking that, well, if other people can do this, why can't I? And then the diagnosis comes and the kind of this light bulb moment goes off going, Oh, this is why you can't, because it affects you differently than it affects them.
2: Mm. You mentioned before that you've been learning to recognise empathy in others. How has that journey been? How has that impacted your relationship with people at work?
0: I taught myself empathy. Mm. I understand empathy intellectually. I can see if a person's reacting in a slightly different way than I'd expect them to react to things because my autism notices a shift in the way people are sitting. adjustment of a piece of clothes Mm. or a way that a face might micro expression when I say certain things because I've I've learned to understand those things because as someone with an autism they're the things you want to pick up Mm. I have a barometer if you like of what I would expect to see from a person on an average day of the people I read and if I see them deviate from those paths then something's wrong And then I start looking into what could it possibly be that might be wrong and that's how I gauge empathy it's more of an understanding of human nature if you like than it is an understanding of the emotions that people are feeling and having to kind of experience that and go through that and then implement that into a working environment where not everybody's goals are aligned not everybody's thought process is aligned not everybody's um, understanding of something is aligned just because different people understand different things in different ways is a struggle sometimes because like just as a basic understanding when people say to me okay you'll have it by the end of the day I expect that they mean you'll have it by the end of the day because that's what they've said so then when they get to the end of the day and I don't have it I get annoyed Mm -hmm. because my autism is just flaring up Going, well you you told me something and they're wondering why I'm getting annoyed and I'm just like but you said like you the you were the one that said it you didn't Mm -hmm. have to tell me that and it's little things like that through the business day where I think autistic people struggle about that sort of stuff because we take things literally. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you are going to say those sorts of things, then I expect it to be in line with what you've said. I'm not I'm not holding you to any different standard than the standard you you told me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of stuff is, is kind of hard to get your head around. So for autistic people's empathy is, okay, I understand that maybe you didn't mean you'll have it by the end of the day, so I'm not going to bug you about it. But the emotional and nervous system damage it does to me is implicit i can't just forget those things i can't just let it just doesn't like water off a duck's back type thing Mm. that doesn't happen with autistic people because you set an expectation that you haven't delivered against
3: Mm.
0: so that's tough and you just learn to kind of accept it but every time that happens i talk about it as like a micro cut in your brain
3: Mm.
0: it just feels like somebody's kind of scratching a blackboard that's the feeling it gets where those type of things happen throughout the day
2: Mm. we've talked quite a lot about the negative aspects of having autism, ADHD, or some sort of neurodivergent condition. But you have said before that you view your diagnosis as your superpower. So, what does that mean for you? How does having this superpower, as you call it, benefit you as a CEO? So, because of
0: the way an autistic person's brain works, we'll only do what's logical to us. Mm so as a decision maker or a business leader i've never really doubted a decision i've made which sounds really weird but in my head i wouldn't have made the decision if i doubted it Mm. so the ability to sort of wrestle with a decision spend a lot of time thinking about it but once you've made the decision you don't question it you just move forward and then if you have to change your mind in six months 12 months whatever time you make the new decision but from a business leader's perspective I would like to believe that everyone that works with me knows exactly which direction we're going, why we're going in that direction, all of those types of things, which I think is a very positive thing for a CEO or business leader in terms of just the the confidence of your convictions. Because I would also argue I struggled working for other people for those exact same reasons. Mm. So I have struggled at different parts of my life working for other people. If I don't believe or agree with the decisions that they're making because they don't seem logical to me, that's been hard. I'm in a fortunate enough position. It's, it's obviously I'm a co-founder and co-business owner of the company and CEO. So you, once you get to a level where it is your baby, it is your thing, and you can make some of the decisions. Yes, it's phenomenal having a group of people around you that trust you enough to make those decisions, but also call you on those decisions if you're going off in the wrong direction or if something they don't understand what you're saying and they'll they'll pick you up and go why that why mm-hmm. that and have have those sorts of things questioned which is great because it just feeds into providing more information. But that to me is another superpower. I have a, a really good ability to consume large amounts of data points and work my way through those. And I can just burn through that information and work out, okay, this one might be good here, but I need to ask them some questions about this because this doesn't seem like it fits correctly. So just that ability to kind of just give me as much information as possible my brain will process it in some format or another, and will come to a decision, conclusion, whatever that might be.
2: Do you think that workplaces do enough to support people with autism or neurodivergent people? And do you think that there's, or do you think that there's more that can be done?
0: I think there's a load more that can be done, but I, but I don't blame businesses. It's really difficult because I don't blame businesses because at the moment you're asking businesses to have to educate every single person that works for them to understand all of the nuances around every single potential neurodiversity. Yes, that would be a step in the right direction, but that's a really tough thing. to like. It's a really tough thing to do when most people don't understand what those things are to start off with. So absolutely, I think businesses could and should be doing more about those sorts of things and should be providing guidance on how people could be working and interacting with neurodivergent people absolutely but if it just goes down as a policy like a health and safety policy or like a an acceptable use policy it's one of those things that people will just read and will it actually change the lives of the neurodivergent people it's supposed to help and i don't know is the honest answer but i definitely think that the education and communication and openness is is more needed in this space Mm
2: tell me a little bit more about this book that you're writing about your own diagnosis so after the
0: diagnosis I suppose in some ways it was like a coping mechanism if you like so I just started writing about it because like all of the things I've had to do in my life and all of the things that I've had to cope with and ways of doing that and trying to help get I suppose again I, I come at it from an education perspective so like one of the first chapters is just like what is autism because I just don't think again I come back to that I just don't think if you asked nine out of ten people on the street what is autism they wouldn't be able to give you a consistent definition of what autism is and I talk about it from and again obviously for my own research I was looking at books and first off there's I would say 90% of the books are autistic children about autistic children how to work with autistic children how to parent autistic children like all of that stuff it's it's primarily about autistic children there's not a lot about autism in later life Mm -hmm. which immediately was like okay that's the problem because there's a huge number of people that are having to deal with this so so we need to be talking more about it there's more about talking about my my experiences to to say if you are, if you've gone through these same sort of things or similar sort of things, or you're experiencing these sorts of things, maybe it's worth going to get a diagnosis. Maybe it's worth going to talk to somebody about it to see if it's this. You may be struggling with all of these these difficulties and these problems throughout large parts of your life, and actually, there is a person that can help you with those things. So a lot of it to me was around. The education part of sort of what is autism and and, and how how does that play through if, if you like in your life but then the other parts were even when i was reading some of those books or blogs i didn't see much about how you could help autistic people or how you could interact with autistic people it was a lot about coping mechanisms for the autistic person mm-hmm. which is absolutely valid and the, the, one of the, the bits i one of the chapters i've talked about is exactly that right so and I, and i will bring it back around to your original question but To me, that puts all of the onus on the person with autism, Mm. who is the person who's struggling in the first place. So like some of this needs to come down to helping people understand how autistic people think and how autistic people can speak to help the person, the people in your life and the people in your work understand that they might react differently to certain things. Like as an example, and this has totally fundamentally changed our lives now. When my wife and I will have an argument as soon as basically as soon as the argument's finished I'd say within two to five minutes as soon as the argument's finished I'm fine mm. because all of the emotion that I had in me has been let out so I'm the one that's like cool do you want to have some dinner now do you want me to make you a cup of tea you're like mm. I'm done with it because as far as I'm concerned the way my brain works is something was bothering me I've said it we have discussed it we had an argument about it cool I'm fine now move on which is obviously the complete opposite way to the way a neurotypical person might process things because my wife is like, well, we just had a, an emotional argument about something. I'm not okay. Mm. And it's things like that, understanding that there are times where I'm going to say things out loud because they're in my head and the effect of my nervous system from keeping that in my head is worse than me saying it out loud. So there are times I will say things out loud where other people have been like, why would you say that? <laughs> And I'm like, because if I keep it in, it affects me way more than if I say it. Because mm. if I say it, it doesn't really affect me at all. Other people get affected, completely granted. But as far as I'm concerned, the emotional valve that I was holding onto just gets released. So there's things like that, which I just don't think talked about enough, where you've got coping mechanisms, and you've got masking, you've got all these other things that autistic people are asked to do and, and, and ways that we should cope with our lives. But sometimes there's just... I just don't want to go out today. I don't want to go outside the house. Like it's too much. It's too loud. It's too bright. It's too It's too much. I can't do it. And it's not because I'm depressed. It's not because I'm anxious. It's just because my nervous system just wants to sit in a room that I know with people that I know. And I just don't want any additional stimulation. And, and it's things like that of going, that's an important type of things to be talking about and sharing with people. And it's not all about you should have these 10 coping mechanisms to make your life better. And you should, there are coping mechanisms that make your life better. But to me, it's trying to help people understand why we might do some of the coping
2: mechanisms. What advice would you give to another CEO or or someone in a a leadership position within business who either has Autism or has a recent diagnosis or any other sort of neurodiverse condition, what advice would you give to them based on your own experiences, perhaps?
0: You have to trust the people that you work with to be able to share a very personal thing with them. Generally, people have got to that position in life are because of certain personality traits, and they may have an ego of some sort as well, generally. So to kind of sit people down and explain a very vulnerable thing is difficult. And I think that there probably are quite a lot of senior managers, directors, CEO, C-level people that have a neurodiverse thing and probably haven't told anybody about it, which in itself is kind of an indictment of, of where we are with the topic. I think that sharing the information and sharing what you might be doing and why I think to me is that is that kind of critical path to try and get the support from the people that you're working with. It involves an understanding from those people because there are times where I've been asked to come to a meeting and at the last minute I've had to say I'm really sorry I can't come because I'm just not in I'm not in the place to, to attend that meeting. I mean that's happened super rarely but it has happened i will probably say a couple of times since July and you have to have the understanding of the people you work with to just to be able to say I'm, I'm sorry I can't I can't deal with that. I just can't. You're yeah. just gonna have to you're just gonna have to work it out. So it does put a little bit more pressure on them sometimes. So you, so you have to be open about those sorts of things. I think that getting the diagnosis is is kind of critical on those on those points. But then to me it's also you have to take that extra step of of explaining the part. So you could share that. Okay, like I have autism and ADHD. Like you, you could be embarrassed to not want to talk about it more, and then you go, well, I've shared it. I've told mm. people i have got autism and ADHD. That's not enough to me. Like I shared, like, here's some podcasts you should listen to that I found were really good and and talk about some of the stuff I'm going through. Here's some blog posts that I read, which are kind of applicable to the way that I think the way I am. Here's some of the things that I'm going to be implementing and why I'm going to be implementing them. You can't assume that people understand what you're talking about. It's not just about sharing. You have a responsibility to help educate them. And if They're unwilling to watch those things, listen to those things, read those things. That's kind of on them. But at least you've you've given them the tools to go, this is how you can help. Mm. i found nothing but support from the people I work with when I talked about it. It's one of the more vulnerable things you can do as a CEO, Mm. uh, or as a C-level person or as a business leader, whatever it is, is to go, there's this really big part of me (laughs) which isn't great in this situation. And it might cause us some problems and some difficulties and the way we work might be awkward. But I want to share that with you here you go. Mm. But I think that if you don't talk about it, you put yourself in a situation where you're not enabling the people you work with to work with you effectively.
2: Mm. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a a real pleasure to sit and and speak with you today.
0: Mary, still, thank you very much for the time as well.
1: No problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.